2: In days of yore, whenever a king or a noble or an aristocrat wanted to help keep their favorite creators of cool things going so that those people could keep creating more cool things for them to enjoy, they would become a patron. A patron of the arts. And now you too can do that very same thing, except you don't need a Scrooge McDuck sized vault of gold doubloons to do it. Now there is a crowdsourcing service called Patreon where each patron pitches in a tiny amount to help keep the ongoing projects they love like podcasts and YouTube channels alive and thriving. And if you would like to do that, just head to patreon.com/youarenotso smart to learn more about how you can directly support this show that's about to begin a new episode right now. <music> <laughs> Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart podcast, episode 43. (music) My original plan was to start this episode with some clips from procedural crime dramas, you know, police shows, movies, that kind of thing. Clips where you would hear people being interrogated by cops. Where am I? What's happening? What's happening? Playing dumb, Master Builder. No, I Master Builder. Oh, so you've never heard of the prophecy? No, I, Or the special. I, no, no, I'm a liar. Because today's guest is Julia Shaw, a psychologist who is able to use police interrogation like techniques to implant false memories into unsuspecting subjects. But then, while I was putting together this episode, This happened.
1: I made a mistake in recalling the events of 12 years ago. I want to apologize. I said I was traveling in an aircraft that was hit by RPG fire. I was instead in a following aircraft. We all landed...
2: Now, if you have not been keeping up with this story, let me catch you up. That was Brian Williams. He is a well-known journalist in the United States. He is the anchor of the NBC Nightly News. Millions of people watch that. And he recently gave this apology behind his desk during a normal episode Of his show because in a previous episode he said that he was in a helicopter during his coverage of the Iraq war and that helicopter had been hit by an RPG and he also introduced a clip of himself at a hockey game where he and a soldier received a standing ovation and the announcer introduced them both as people who were in a helicopter who had been hit by an RPG and what happened next was on social media one of the soldiers who was there said no that's not how it happened and since then it has quickly come to light that Brian Williams was telling a story that wasn't true. The thing is, this story has really become huge in America because he kind of didn't apologize in the way that everyone expected him to. He just simply said, I misremembered. I conflated. It's a mistake. Instead of saying what everyone expected to hear, I lied. And this is a story that we've learned over the last few days of coverage that Williams has repeated many times many times
1: years ago in iraq tell people what that occurred i brought a photo which arrived in my email two mornings ago of where i was tonight a decade ago this very day this very day uh this
2: this is williams in 2013 telling the story to late night talk show host david letterman we were
1: in uh, some helicopters what we didn't know was we were north of the invasion we were the northernmost Americans in Iraq. We were going to drop some bridge portions across the Euphrates so the third infantry could cross on them. Uh, two of our four helicopters were hit by ground fire, including the one I was in. No kidding. Uh, RPG and an AK-47. What what altitude were you hit at? We were only at 100 feet doing
2: it. It's a 100. great story. It's something that. Came from Williams's past that he is obviously very proud to recall and to recount. It's a tale that has helped define him over the years, both in his own mind and in the mind of others.
1: And the only problem is, it's also not true. As a guy, as a journalist, what do you think? This is a great position to be in, or holy crap, I got to get out of here. I uh, more toward the holy crap. <laughs>
2: yeah. Um, America's reaction to learning the truth behind this story was to go into total pitchforks in torches mode. At least that's what it looks like on the comments and the blogs and the social media and the news stories and all the other things that make up our, you know, conversation as a nation. And his apology, suggesting that he had not lied but had misremembered or, as he put it, made a mistake, only made things worse. The internet started making memes showing Brian Williams walking with Martin Luther King Jr. and interviewing Abraham Lincoln and riding with Tupac, you know, the sort of thing the internet does. And the late night shows started telling jokes about him and the media scholars and the pundits, the people who are very serious about this sort of thing, started to call into question his ethics, the ethics of NBC, and calling for his resignation. And for many people, this the sticking point, the real sticking point, was the very idea that someone could misremember something so vivid, so specific, so detailed, so important, you know, in their lives, how could you misremember such a thing? There seems to be a sort of, how dare you use that kind of defense, that flimsy defense when you're trying to steal these soldiers' valor. You know, that seems to be something that's in the air. I asked my dad, who is a Vietnam veteran, could someone misremember something big like that, something that may have happened to them in war, in combat? And this is what he said. If you've been in combat or a combat zone and you get shot and hit an aircraft you're in and you crash land, that's something you will remember. It's not something
3: you would have a vague and foggy memory of, plain and simple.
2: Concerning Brian Williams, I don't know if he knowingly lied. It's totally possible, and I'm not trying to defend him in any way. But I am concerned that so many people were so quick to dismiss the concept of misremembering on this scale. So I contacted psychologist Daniel Simons, and I asked him, what what does the research say about this?
3: Well, I mean, the the key here in this particular case is that it's not that he's... um, you know, failing to remember having been hit. It's that he remembered something that didn't happen to him personally, but happened to other people near him. That sort of, that sort of distortion can happen quite, quite a lot.
2: You're probably familiar with Daniel Simon's work. He and his colleague, Christopher Shabri, they wrote that book, The Invisible Gorilla, and they're behind the Invisible Gorilla video you may have seen on YouTube. And in their book, they have this, this chapter all about memory. They call it the illusion of memory, this feeling that we have, an intuition, a bias. He says that we seem to believe that the more vivid a memory is, the more accurate it also must be. And that just isn't necessarily
3: true. Uh, There's no really bright line between the kinds of memories for which you can suffer distortions and the kind that you can't. It's not clear. The assumption that there are some memories that are too vivid, too important to possibly have memory distortions for them, Um, That's really an assumption. There's there's really not any evidence separating memories that are that precise from those that aren't. All memories are potentially subject to that sort of memory distortion. And over many years in the retelling, when you have been in cases in situations where you've been shot at, um, it's quite possible that you would conflate exactly what happened to you. We all probably have memories of things that happened to us as kids that didn't actually happen to us but happened to a sibling or a friend. Um, that over time just got distorted. We've all had the experience of telling a joke we heard that we really liked right back to the person who told it to us in the first place, right? So we all have these sort of source failures where we don't remember where we experienced something. We conflate what we experienced with what we heard about.
2: Simon says that most people are familiar with the fallibility of memory. We've all walked into a kitchen and wondered, why did I come in here? And we've all lost our keys and not remember where we put them. We've searched the house for our glasses. We've forgotten where we left our car. But this other thing, this remembering something that did not happen or remembering something that happened to someone else, we're not really familiar with that. It doesn't seem right. And there's an important reason why we don't have that intuition.
3: Yeah. Well, then that's the problem is that for most people, you never actually get to check. Right. So most of us probably have these sorts of false memories. But how often have you gone back to one of those important memories and tried to verify the documentary record? Probably not often, unless you have a documentary record. So politicians get caught out because when Hillary Clinton recalled coming into Bosnia under sniper fire, you know there were people on the plane with her, like Sinbad, the comedian, who said, uh, nope. And there were no contemporary reports of what the First Lady was doing at the time, Um, And there were tons of contemporary reports and you could look at them and none of them said that she came down under sniper fire. So with a politician or a public figure like Brian Williams, there is an extensive record of what they've said and when and what they experienced at the time. But for most of us, if if you recall what you were doing on September 11th, who's going to counter it? You'll recall that memory, you will tell it, it seems vivid to you, and you'll have no way of knowing it's changed unless you're able to go back and check what you actually did at that time.
2: And ironically, when you fact check Brian Williams, we know what he's saying now isn't true because Williams actually wrote down and reported what actually did happen to him. He's the person who put it down in the public record. And even though he's a journalist who routinely fact checks the stories of other people, even though he knows the original story is available for anyone who cares to check to see if he's telling the truth, he doesn't remember it the way he told it way back
3: then look for
1: some security we quickly make our drop and then turn southwest suddenly without knowing why we learn we've been ordered to land in the desert. On the ground, we learned the Chinook ahead of us was almost blown out of the sky. That hole was made by a rocket-propelled grenade or RPG.
2: Man, when you hear that, you think, why didn't Brian Williams just fact-check himself? Just go back to that original footage. He knows it's there. And according to Simons, the problem may be because he told the story so many times over and over again, the effect, the result was kind of like what would happen if you were playing telephone with yourself. For a very long time.
3: Yeah, that, that's actually basically reiterating a point that was made in 1932 by Frederick Bartlett, uh, who actually used the children's telephone game method of what he called the method of serial reproduction. So you reproduce things over and over again, and you can do it by telling other people, or you can do it by retel- calling the same thing yourself over and over. And yeah, your memories can introduce new details over time. And one of the interesting things about Brian Williams' case is he did recall it many times. And the memory changed over time. It wasn't always the same false recollection. it changed over time. and that's exactly what you'd expect from this sort of memory distortion. It could also be what you'd expect from a lie, so it's hard to tell. but it is the sort of thing that you would see over time the memory would become progressively distorted. The really central point is that what we recall, the things that we recall as our memories, are whatever the state of those memories are right now so I recall what I was doing on, when I heard about September 11th, I remember it in great detail, and I know it's wrong because I checked it. But that's what I recall, that's what my memory is. And maybe over time it somehow became distorted, but my memory isn't that precise recollection from the original event. It's not a video recording, instead it's like you're improvising on a, on a theme every time. And improvisation can gradually change the piece itself.
2: You can learn more about the work of daniel simons at danielsimons.com the book he co-authored with christopher shabri is the invisible gorilla and they both just wrote a piece for slate titled how not to be the next brian williams if you would like to hear my full interview with daniel i'm uploading it to my patron only feed at patreon.com slash you are not so smart you'd like to read more stuff by Christopher Shabri and Daniel Simons concerning how bad memory is, um, they have two great articles. One is in the Chicago Tribune, and that is, Do Politicians Lie or Just Misremember It Wrong? And the other one is in the New York Times, Why Our Memory Fails Us. The New York Times article is from 2014, but the, the one in the Chicago Tribune, that was from 2010. And that sort of speaks to the fact that we have a scientific consensus here. Um, there's a consensus among psychologists with 40 years of research to back up that consensus that memory is fallible, malleable, unreliable, and that you don't remember your original experiences. You recall the retelling of them. You create memories sort of from the raw material of what's happening to you right now, anew, and that can drastically change the memory over time, but it doesn't change your confidence in the memory. And so you really need some checks and balances in your organization to protect against that kind of misremembering. But you also need checks and balances to protect against something else. False memories. False memories implanted by other people. Now, how easily could someone manipulate your memories so that you remember something and then believe it? Believe that you did something that never actually happened in your own life. And could someone do something like that in such a way that you would actually believe you committed a major crime and go to jail for it thinking that you were guilty? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. Only you are not so smart podcast. My name is David McCraney and I will be your host. And on each episode of the You are not so smart podcast, we explore another topic in the realm of self delusion, the psychology of judgments and decision making, and the neuroscience of reasoning itself. We will discuss something that will not only uncover self-delusion, but also celebrate it. And in this episode, we're going to talk about misremembering. And in the first half of the show, we discussed a natural sort of misremembering, something that happens over time uh, as you remember and remember and remember and retail and retail and retail, and the memory gets more and more embellished. There's another kind of misremembering, though, that we're going to talk about in the second half, which is the kind of misremembering that takes place when you when you gain a false memory because of the actions of another person. And we're going to talk to psychologist Julia Shaw about that, who was able to very easily implant false memories into the minds of college students, false memories in which they believe they committed felonies, felonies that would have put them in jail. And we're going to, we're going to talk all about that in a second. It's a really cool interview before that though. Um, I want to share a conversation I had with you On the You Are Not So Smart Facebook page, I asked you, uh, what is your earliest memory? I said, um, on the Facebook page, I asked, what is your earliest memory, the oldest one that you can recall? I will share some of your answers. In an upcoming episode of the podcast, this is that podcast. Uh, There was a lot of people, a lot of stuff in here. 155 memories were shared. There's so many of them. Of course, I can't read them all, but I do urge you to go over to the Facebook page, and read some of them and share some of them yourself and sort of talk to each other about them. Cause there's so many cool things in here. Um, I almost feel like they're, they're so intimate that I maybe shouldn't share them, but, um, they're so fascinating. Like, um, um, Vid Vodopivik wrote that I was three or five years old in Disneyland or Disney world, whichever one is in Florida. <laughs> That's Disney world. And, um, I remember that it's a small world song, uh, playing over and over again. And, um, and the Peter Pan ride, and uh, he said that one was sick. Uh, Steve Rosen says his earliest memory is um, that he had a vision of himself in his mind sitting in a high chair. And um, he found out recently that it was false. That it actually was a video that he had watched that uh, had been captured on 8mm. And uh, he had seen the image and he watched it as a child and it became a memory of him being in the chair. Cassie Carlson, she says that... She remembers being held by her mother and she was crying and she was sung to and she you know was comforted but she remembered that her mother was inha- unhappy and wanted her to stop and that scared her and she says in this uh comment she's not sure if it's real because it seems unlikely that she would have retained that memory Derek Anson he says that he also has discovered recently that one of his first memories was false He remembered having a brain scan as a kid, and uh, he's realized that it's not true. It never happened, and it was something that um, he must have seen on television that stuck with him. And John Padilla says that he also has a false memory that he thought was real for many years, that he thought was his earliest memory, and that was waking up in his crib and uh, wondering how he got inside of it. Elizabeth Green says her first memory was a birthday party a one-year-old birthday party and she remembers a cheap imitation Barbie and cake being everywhere and her being angry and uh, she remembers throwing the Barbie uh, into the sink after popping her head off and there was dirty dishwater in the sink and she remembers hard caramel candy and running around the living room and kicking balloons and she remembers candy getting lodged in her throat and um, she says that she's not quite sure if that's real either. She says it might it's pretty unlikely that she remembers her first birthday. John Mashad says his first memory is very, very vivid. He remembers a gold colored couch when he was a child in his first house and his mother was ironing. They were watching television on channel five. The Boston news was reporting about the snow and he can clearly remember the channel's logo on the screen. And he adds that he's often wondered if that was a real memory or some story that his mind made up later on. And he goes into some detail later on in the comment, but he's not sure real or false. Carrie Ward says that she remembers standing and holding the railing of her crib in her parents' bedroom while her mother was getting ready at the sink outside of the bathroom. And her dad was sitting on the edge of their bed putting on his shoes. And then he stopped and he stood on the bed and jumped up and down once or twice to make her laugh. And he remembers thinking that they were going to get in trouble for this, that he was going to get in trouble. And that their mom, whenever whenever mom would turn around and see what was going on and see why that she was laughing, Uh, both her and her dad would act casual until she turned around and then he would do it again. And that she remembers moving out of that house when she was five and, uh, that was the earliest memory. And she adds, isn't it funny what you remember? It is, it is crazy what you remember. My, my very first memory is, um, my dad had built some sort of, um, go-kart. And I remember us, no, 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 no. I'm remembering right now. I'm already, I'm already changing. I remember, no, my dad used to have a Jeep, like a military Jeep. And I do remember we've talked about this recently that they sold it. And, uh, it was like a very valuable, you know, antique Jeep. And he, and we were riding around the countryside in it and it was just fun and funny and weird. And I was very little and that's my first memory. But I don't know, just like so many of the people who shared something in here. Thank you so much. Everyone who shared, please go to the Facebook page and read and share and look, uh, look at different things people have said. But like you, I don't know if that's real. I don't know if that's real because I asked Julia Shaw in, um, in the interview, <laughs> how much of our memory is false. And this is what she said. What percentage would you say of a typical person's memories are fictional?
0: A hundred percent. Uh, uh, that a is- controversial <laughs> statement, but uh,
2: Elizabeth. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a cool interview. You will hear the whole thing right after these words from our sponsors. The Great Courses. What is it? This is a service that allows you to get DVDs, CDs, audio podcast-ish type online download thing, streaming through apps, all sorts of stuff, 500 courses on everything from science, history, and more, really professionally made, very cool. It's like taking a nice college course that you learn at your own pace, and you can go wherever you need to go, car, subway, at home, at work. It's really cool. And here, oh, you're going to love this. We have a very new thing here, Your Deceptive Mind, A Scientific Guide to Critical Thinking. It's amazing, and guess who is in it? Guess who teaches it? Dr. Stephen Novella. He was a guest on this show. Dr. Stephen Novella talked to us all about conspiracy theories. He's a professor of neurology at Yale, and uh, he's also the head of the New England Skeptical Society. He does the uh, podcast, The Skeptical God of the Universe. You've probably heard about him many times. I, I actually met him recently at DragonCon, and we did a panel together about conspiracy theories. It's it's just so cool that he has this, and uh, it's a really good course. Everything you have ever wanted to know about um, not only biases and fallacies and stuff like that, but also he talks about metacognition, how brains process information and misinformation that shapes our thoughts. He also provides uh, practical tools to become a stronger critical thinker. And, uh, you know, just think about, wouldn't you like to take a course by Dr. Steven Novella? Well, you can, and you can do that at the great courses and you can get a special deal right now. You can get 80% off of the price of that course, along with eight other courses. And, uh, There's behavioral economics that we talked about earlier. There's this now, your deceptive mind. And for a limited time, for people who listen to this podcast, you can get 80% off The Great Courses. Go to thegreatcourses.com. You'll get my special offer if you go to thegreatcourses.com slash smart. That's thegreatcourses.com slash smart. If you're listening to this show the day it comes out, then Valentine's Day is this weekend, and you're thinking, uh, what am I going to get? And if you're getting it for your mama, like I do, or you're getting something um, for your sweetheart, uh, the person that you love, you're probably wondering, uh, is it something I'm going to stand in line? Am I going to to go to the store? Am I going to buy something lame? Just forget all that. Get Sherry's berries. They deliver a decadent treat directly to your door. It is fresh. It is cold. The person receiving it will go, oh, someone does care about me. What you get are freshly dipped strawberries from Sherry's Berries starting at $19.99. That's 40% off. If you go to berries.com, berries.com, and you click on the microphone and type in my code, which is Delusion. And for my listeners, you can double the berries for just $10 more, but you have to use that code, DELUSION. And you get these these strawberries. They're gigantic, insanely big strawberries dipped in white milk and dark chocolatey goodness, topped with chocolate chips and decorative swizzles and nuts and all sorts of crazy stuff. And I know I I shouldn't trust my memory. That's what this episode is all about. But in my memory of getting a box of these uh, whenever this campaign began and they send out a box so that you can taste them yourself. Um, I remember them being the size of baseballs, maybe grapefruits. Um, And that's not possible. But let me just say that my pleasure from eating them has expanded, has embellished in my mind how gigantic these things are. And look, here's how you do it. Here's how you get these sent to someone you love. Uh, The only way to get this amazing Valentine's day deal is, uh, these giant, juicy, freshly dipped strawberries starting at nineteen ninety nine, or doubling those berries for $10 more is visit berries.com, dot com. Click on the microphone on the top right corner. Type in DELUSION. Yes, that's right. You're getting it. Go to berries.com. Click on the microphone. Enter the code DELUSION. Order today. And now we return to our program. Our guest in this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast is Dr. Julia Shaw. She is a lecturer in forensic psychology. She is a forensic psychologist at the University of Bedfordshire in the UK. She studies things like um, false memories, eyewitness issues, criminal thinking. She also uh, assists in the training of professionals in detecting deception. And she's evaluated court-ordered offender diversion programs. She uh, has done all sorts of really interesting stuff in the realm of uh, forensic psychology. In her latest research, the thing that is just... All over the place. Everyone is talking about how cool this is, it is Constructing Rich False Memories of Committing a Crime. That's the uh, title of her paper. And uh, she's also working on a book about false memories and implanting these creepy false memories into people. You want to hear all about this? You're going to. It's Dr. Julia Shaw. Let's pick her brain. Okay. Okay. So Julia, I think many of us believe that our memories are perfect recordings and snapshots and they're locked away inside of our heads until we go digging for them and then we pull them out and that we see them in in perfect detail like they occurred. Um, What does science have to say about those sort of intuitions?
1: Well,
0: certainly the notion of memory as a video camera or as a photograph uh, is, is incredibly prevailing and memory has poked many, many holes into that notion Suggesting that actually memory is largely uh, self-created, reconstructed, and has fiction built in almost automatically. So it's an incredibly malleable process.
2: So it's really open to distortion and it's inaccurate. Are those? That's pretty. We can pretty much say that for sure at this point.
0: For sure. So the question has changed in the last, I'd say, ten years or so, where memory researchers have stopped asking what. How can we help people remember things? Or uh, how good is memory? It's how bad is memory slash um, how malleable are things so it's really looking for fallacies looking for problems rather than looking for uh, how good it works because it's inherently not so good
2: that's crazy because you know the i think that when we think about ourselves like you know uh, we want to we, we start imagining our, our 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 very essence our soul we 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 look to our memories i mean our memories are what make us who we are if you in science fiction when it plays around with that concept, you know, you remake people by wiping their memory and letting them start over again. Um, the, you know, how, we, how trustworthy are uh, the memories that we cherish? Uh, like the, the, the story of who we are as a person, it, how as a scientist would you, um, do you view that the trustworthiness of that, that narrative that we construct out of our memories?
0: So the narrative, just because each and every one of our memories is prone to the same kinds of distortions, arguably, um, there's no reason for particularly emotional or particularly, as you call them, important life events to be preserved in any particularly different way. So they're equally prone to distortion. And that means that our personal narrative can be (laughs) and is largely fiction and is largely, as you said, uh, inceptionable, if you will, (laughs) um uh, where or people other people can go in there and add bits to your memories you can go in there every time you recall it and add bits or change bits um and i mean from the very beginning the way you look at the world is through a filter and that filter continues and kind of like what, what do you like what people sometimes like to say is the more often you tell a story the better it gets <laughs> yeah. so we embellish we add to it intentionally and unintentionally
2: so, if you were like just uh, like a just a just a guess just a a spitball a speculative um um thing here, I would like what percentage do would you say of a typical person's memories are fictional
0: a hundred percent. Uh, uh, that is- a controversial statement, but uh, <laughs> Elizabeth Loftus, who's arguably the leading researcher in false memory research, uh, recently had a TED Talk, and she said, all memory is essentially false. And it's, again, the the statements or the type of statement we hear echoed throughout the literature right now. Um, and it's it's a good enough principle. It's Memory is good enough, evolutionary speaking, just like everything else in our bodies, from our eyes to our stomachs to our muscles, um, memory is good enough to, to survive. It's not perfect.
2: Well, that is, uh, that's a little frightening. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> like, cause I, I've seen, I've seen, uh, I read somewhere a neuroscientist who said, you know, they, <clears throat> they reasoned that it was maybe 70% of your memories were completely, completely fictional. And, uh, and that scared me, but now you said a hundred percent and I'm terrified.
0: I wouldn't say that they're completely fictional. I just say that elements of them are fictional.
2: All right. So it's a um, highly embellished, highly um, uh, rewritten to make us feel better about ourselves or to cover up the bad parts.
0: Not necessarily, not necessarily to make us feel better. I mean, my research points at how we can embellish notions or, or events, create them out of nowhere, from nowhere, um, that about very negative things. Oh, yeah. So about committing crimes. So this does not have to be mean that it's always going to improve for the better. It just means it changes over time, and it can improve for the better, but it can also just become more extreme, more dramatic, or less dramatic.
2: <laughs> so I, uh, we'll get to your, your research uh, in just a second. But before that, you know what you're saying with the that of uh, how our, our, our memory is so malleable and that it's distorted in both a uh, positive and negative directions, depending on how we've been uh what we've uh, interacted with if if we sort of have this metaphor that's been around for a while of the computer hard drive or the file <laughs> or a filing cabinet um, yeah. what would be your better metaphor for how memory works <laughs>
0: Uh, I, and not my metaphor. I'm going to steal it. What is it? Great great artist, good artist copy, great artist steal. <laughs>
2: right.
0: <laughs> Stealing from Beth Loftus again. She likes to compare it to a Wikipedia page. <laughs> so memory is like a Wikipedia page. You can go in there and change it, but so can other people. So it's That's the notion right. that it's it's editable by yourself, by others, by anyone who has access to the internet, or in this case, by anyone who has access to your memory or to you.
2: That is that's awesome. And so what does that mean for, um, I mean, we, a whole lot of our like civilization, are the way we um, have tried to elevate ourselves above, uh, you know, primitive interactions is to have a legal system that slowly, you know, uh, uh, decides, you know, for us what is justice and, and keeps us from doing really, um, you know, keeps us away from vengeance and other weird things that we would do if we didn't have a sort of a a framework for justice, a lot of that hinges on eyewitness testimony. Um, Mm -hmm. How, from uh, an expert on memory, an expert on the psychology and neuroscience of memory, how should we be treating eyewitness testimony in the legal system?
0: Well, the legal system, I mean, you point at justice, I mean, just the whole notion of justice is a whole nother point for discussion. Um, But of course, with, with regards to this memory research, the foundation of law being largely, yeah, as you said, eyewitnesses and confessions and just memory accounts in general. Victims as well. We like to forget that victims can have false memories. Um, so you can think you were the victim of a crime that never happened. You can think you committed a crime that never happened. And you can see, think that you watched or heard a crime that never happened. So at all levels, memory, this fallible memory, <laughs> inherently fallible memory, um, is is going to have potential errors that are introduced automatically into the justice system. So it's no surprise when we hear accounts that are dissimilar in many ways, or even completely conflicting. And that's not necessarily pointing to these people lying, but it could just be, again, these, the way that memory stored retrieved and um, just distorted over time. Mm
2: -hmm. Confabulation. I love that word. That's one of my favorite words. Once that was added to my vocabulary, I, I drop it everywhere. And it's, um,
0: uh, Except that nobody knows what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
2: sir. could you uh what is your definition for confabulation?
0: Confabulation is when you generate details um uh, about things that never happened in terms of memory. So for example, a confabulated detail would be maybe you don't actually remember the color of someone's sweater in the last time you saw them. Um, but then in your, your mind you're you're confabulating a detail saying, Oh, it was definitely red. It was definitely a red sweater. So you're, you're adding something. And confabulated events, entire events can happen as well. So again, you can, int- you can introduce a person. I, this happens to me all the time. I have disputes with my friends and family about who was with me at certain events or outings or vacations even and they'll say oh but sue was there and i'll go no she wasn't and it'll be back and forth and then we'll dig out some photos to see whether she was or wasn't <laughs> there um and this this happens on a regular basis i find with people where they disagree on entire people's presences um that's a person you're putting into a memory or taking out one or both of those accounts must be wrong right
2: mm-hmm. so um, that's yeah, that's such a common part of, that's such a weird part of our interaction as, as every human being experiences this, uh, several people getting together and remembering things differently. Right. And it's kind of strange that we don't, that we usually don't leave that and go, well, it's probably because I don't remember anything very well. And I, my memory is, <laughs> but you know, it's just like, oh, well, that was a quirky thing for that one event. And it's hard. It's weird that you, you don't really extrapolate it out to your entire life. Um, and there's a, absolutely. The science writer Robert Krolwich, uh tells a great story about he, his wife. Remembered uh, his he he tells us, he was telling a story to friends and family about how he uh, once saw a famous person on the street, and his wife revealed to him that she was the person that saw it. He was and he wasn't even there, and he completely confabulated this whole thing where he had stolen he basically stole another person's memory and was using it as his awesome story. Yeah, that um,
0: definitely happens regularly as well. <laughs>
2: So confabulation, I guess it's sort of, it's lying, but you don't know you're lying. It's uh,
0: ah, it's not lying. No, no, no. Okay, don't, okay, don't use okay, that term sorry, ever, okay. oh, ever.
2: Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, not lying.
0: Self-deception is uh, such a, oh, I reviewed a paper recently um, where they tried to equate self-deception, as they called it, to false memories. Now, the fundamental difference between deception and a false memory is that in deception, there's an inherent notion of Intent. So you're actively trying to distort something or trying to misrepresent something. In a false memory, you have no idea it's happening. So that's the difference is maybe in the origins of it, someone might have intent. So for example, me as a researcher might have intent to generate a false memory in you, or you might even have intent or desire to manipulate a memory. But once it's there, it's no longer a lie because it just becomes your reality. It becomes your memory. And so there's no intent involved anymore. That's good. So it's, it's a, not a point of contention that's overstatement, but there, there is some disagreement in the literature as to it's even possible to self deceive in that particular way, because you would always know that you're lying. Mm-hmm. Um, or if it's just other issues around cognitive dissonance or other psychological mechanisms where we're trying to make sense of a discord between, for example, our actions and our thoughts or reality and our perceptions or whatever, but for false memory, it is definitely not deception.
2: Okay, good. I will. I won't say that anymore. Lying, it's not. <laughs> it's not lying. Um, it is now con- that I've
0: reprimanded you. Thank you.
2: I will. I will never do it again. Uh, <laughs> I, although I think I actually wrote that down in, in one of my books. So I, now I'm. I don't think I can get, go back and change it. But uh, when I say
0: self-deception said, is.
2: Well, I said that confabulation was sort of a, it's sort of a, it's like lying without knowing that you're lying, but I, but I guess, uh, a better way of putting it would be to describe the intent, the intentionality of what's going on. Uh, cause a lot of the confabulation that I've written about in the past were people who have certain, um, you know, physical problems with their actual brains that is causing yeah. them to, um, to, there's several weird phenomena that come out of that, uh, where people will, will completely confabulate entire um you know experiences sometimes even you know denying their own disorders um and have there's they have zero knowledge or self-knowledge that they've done that they will even deny that they've done that so right yeah um
0: but so w- again deception yeah it's it's just that intentionality i mean if you define deception in a different way then that that works but
2: that <laughs> no, no, i generally
0: define it it doesn't work that no you're way. right
2: <laughs> no you're right i'm wrong i think that's good um
0: I mean, there is an overlap in that it's, it's what's coming out of your mouth or what you're thinking about is different from reality. Mm-hmm. So in deception and in false memories, your whatever it is you're talking about as your memory is not a representation of reality. Um, so that's the same as deception.
2: And do um, so, this all these notions together. Uh... What what, what, we're going to talk about your research now because it's just amazing. And um, what was (laughs) you. It is. It's really it's really amazing. And uh, what is what was your um, inspiration for uh, putting together this 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 study and this research?
0: The inspiration was, well, there's two inspirations. First of all, it had never been done. So I started delving into the literature on false memory generation in a lab based environment and of criminal events in particular. And there's a fair amount of talk about it within forensic psychology, but then I realized that there actually hadn't been an empirical demonstration in the lab, and that was sort of a piece that was missing in order to convince judges and jurors that this was actually a thing, because a lot of the studies that we did have up until my research, or all of them, focused on you got lost in a mall when you were five, or you... Uh, got attacked by a dog when you were eight, or when you were so there were were very young events. They were non criminal events that were being generated in these false memory studies, um, and the ones that were more towards criminal were mostly case studies. So they'd examined post hoc through agencies like the Innocence Project. They they'd examined cases and they'd found that false confessions were a leading cause of wrongful imprisonment so there was these two pieces but to me they seemed a little bit disjointed still and i wanted to put them together and so i wanted to do a lab-based recreation recreation (laughs) replication um, of adolescent memories of committing crime
2: and you know what what i love about this and what's great about psychology you know is that being a young science like you can you can say oh well this needs to be done and then like i mean your your research uh, and you know all this has to be replicated and torn apart for a couple of years, but it has the potential to really, really change the world, to change the way things are going to be done in the legal system, and um, that's amazing. I'd like,
0: to, I'd like to hope so. I'd like to think so. That's what
2: I mean. That's inc- that's incredible. That's what science can do, uh, and what psychological science can do. So, um, take us through um, the study itself. What did you, what was the procedure? What happened?
0: What was the procedure? So, first of all. We had recruited participants for a screening phase. So the screening phase involved sending questionnaires about the potential participants to their primary caregivers. So our sample was mostly or exclusively university students, and these university students then signed up online, and 127 people gave us their parents' contact information. Those we then sent the questionnaires, and these questionnaires asked about various things that had happened to these potential participants during a specified time frame. So between the ages of 10 and 18. And so what we wanted is, or what we needed was one true memory of an um, emotional event that had happened during this time frame, And we wanted to make sure that they hadn't experienced any of the target events as we called them. Mm-hmm. So the target events were the, the false memories that we wanted to generate. And so there were six events and we had to make sure that they'd never had any police contact. They'd never assaulted someone, et cetera. And so 70 people met the criteria, so met these criteria that they had experienced something emotional that we could talk about first and they hadn't experienced the target events. And so what we did is we we got those people to come in. And those participants came in three times, each one week apart. And we would introduce the first memory when they came in after talking to them, establishing a little bit of rapport. And we'd say to them, So because they knew that we'd contacted their parents, right? On the questionnaire that we sent to your parents, Your parents said that when you were 15, you had a skiing accident, you were with your friend so-and-so, and and you were in Switzerland when it happened. Can you tell us everything, or can you tell me, not us, uh, me, everything you remember about the event from start to finish, trying to leave nothing out no matter how trivial it may seem? Now, that's verbatim what we said, essentially. Mm -hmm. And then they tell us all about this true memory. And it, would, it was relatively easy for most of them because, well, it <laughs> had actually happened. Um, and then we'd go through the structured questionnaire and everything. And then for the second event, we say, okay, your parents also gave a second event. And in this event, your parents reported that you had an instant where you were in contact with the police. Now, at this point, the participants started to, of course, look at us, like, what incident with the police? Because, well, it had never happened, (laughs) as they should, right? They should act surprised that this is an account that we're telling them they experienced. Um, And then we did the same thing. So I then went ahead and said, so your parents said that when you were, and then I picked an age between 11 and 14, randomly, "Uh, when you were 13, you assaulted someone with a weapon, and the police called your parents. You were with, and then I'd insert, and this is key I think, I'd insert a true detail. So their actual best friend, for example, at the time when they were 13 would be in this. So you were with your friend Paul, and Paul was actually the best friend of this person. You were in their hometown. So it was the actual hometown of where they lived at the time. Um, And then tell me everything you remember from start to finish, trying to leave out nothing no matter how trivial it may seem. So the same structure, but of course here they didn't have anything to say initially. And so then we said, okay, well, you can't remember this. Well, lots of people have trouble remembering. This is in fact an emotional memory study, which is how we had sold it. And in this emotional memory study, one of the things we wanted to look at because we anticipated people to have trouble remembering at times was retrieval methods. And so then we'd ask, so would you like to try this, this memory retrieval technique? <laughs> wow. As if it was a choice, right? Right, right? And of course, at this point, everyone's thinking, I can't remember this event. Of course we're going to try this. Um, and then I'd mislead them and say the majority of people who use this technique, so a little bit of social pressure. Uh, if they try hard enough,
1: <laughs>
0: they'll get the memory back. And what does that imply? That implies that if you're not, you're not remembering the event because you're not trying hard enough. right? so there's a lot
2: of and you, you use a lot subtle. of these kind of techniques uh, we did yeah like uh, you, you list some of them out and like some of the, they're so insidious there's like uh um th- most people are able to retrieve these if they try hard enough like you just said the uh, uh building rapport uh uh <laughs> long pregnant pauses where people <laughs> uh the uh what else what else There, you list them all out in the study and they um I, I love the idea that, that there's all these different directions you're coming from. So all these different tactics because you're uh, motivated to get them to do this. And, it, you know, like a police uh, interrogator would would, would be – I'm sorry. Go ahead. Keep going.
0: Yeah, no worries. Um, Definitely. So, yeah, we use all these different techniques. And so, as you said, we, we use pregnant <laughs> – it's amazing how much people will say if you don't say anything. Right, right. <laughs> So just to break a silence, people will give you more details. And then you're nodding and confirming, going, yeah, that really sounds like, that sounds correct, Um, was actually really good for facilitating this this false information or this confabulation of details. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so we would have the participants in front of us. We'd be using these what not to do for memory retrieval techniques. But of course, they didn't know that. I even use things like, I it don't. <laughs> one of my lines for introducing this memory retrieval technique was, I don't like to call it repression, but sometimes we push these memories to the side. <laughs> wow. Now, repression from an empirical stance is, is a highly questionable thing to begin with. Right. But it's a term that these students, who are mostly psychology students, have heard before. Mm-hmm. And there's some credibility associated. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that. Okay, yeah, good. So let's, let's try and uncover this, this possibly repressed memory. Um, so anyways, so then we'd go through this over three weeks. We do it every time. We'd always talk about their true memory, and then we'd go into the false memory.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And first interview, I remember my very first detail that was ever generated by a participant. I'm about three, three or four participants in at this point. And there's a girl. She's got her eyes closed in front of me. And she's doing the visualization. So it's a context reinstatement is what we called this. And it's where you picture yourself at the age of 13. You're in, and you things that are really easy to picture. Mm -hmm. So just your hometown, your best friend, and then the event. How would it have happened? And so she's sitting there visualizing. And she just, she doesn't say anything for the first five minutes. And then she goes, blue sky. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely a blue sky. That was my first detail. That was the blue sky detail. And that was definitely, definitely just the beginning. Because over the next two interviews, so second and third interview, these, these memories just got increasingly embellished, increasingly embellished, to the point where the overwhelming majority of participants not only came to accept the notion that they'd done these crimes or these emotional events, which we'd also implanted, but they also gave us dozens and dozens and dozens of details. So right. they gave us a huge amount of details. So,
2: because you, you had a really high standard for what you would consider a false memory, right?
0: We did, yeah. So you had to have at least ten details. You had to remember who, what, when, and where. So where it was, who you were with, when it happened, etc. And there was almost always so multisensory components, as we called them. So you could hear things in the memory. They could feel things in the memory. Taste things in the memory. Smell things in the memory. Not that everybody had each of these but they had about the same levels for these things as they did for their true memories. So that was really fascinating.
2: So what what percentage of the people generated this, this, uh, this false memory? What percentage of people did you implant the memory of a crime?
0: So we had 60 participants in total, 30 of these had the crime condition and the other had an emotional memory condition. And 71% of those who we'd told had committed a crime came to believe it and came to form these false memories.
2: And what kind of crimes were they?
0: Assaults, assault with a weapon and theft. And all of them were with police contact because <laughs> that's how we, we told them that they the police had contacted their parents, which is how their parents knew about it.
2: So, I mean, I'm imagining these are just, you know, uh, these are college students who are just strolling around, feeling good about life. <laughs> and then, and then within, within just a few uh, minutes with a, with the clever psychologists, they were convinced they had assaulted someone with a weapon when they were younger. <laughs> that's so terrifying <laughs> to know that that's possible.
0: It's uh, enlightening. Let's, let's use the word enlightening. Okay. It's,
2: it's, <laughs> it is terrifying and enlightening. It is. I mean, um, and it was so easy to do. And that, and you know, you, you use non, some non techniques and some of your own, uh, uh, you know, clever, um, uh, ideas as well. And, um, the, the implications seem, you know, enormous for this. Uh, I'm sure that, that this is like a, a big part of, um, where you guys are thinking too, you know, what is it, what are the implications in your mind of what you've discovered here when it comes to things like police interrogation and confessions and, um, even, you know, things like repressed memories where, uh, people, you know, remember something bad happened to them as a child, and then that becomes a legal issue and, uh, all sorts of things like that. What do, what do you think are the implications?
0: The implications. So <laughs> the implications are clearly for law enforcement that if you are going to talk to people about their memories, which is a thing that you'll commonly find them doing, <laughs> that you need to make sure that you're not using misinformation. So misinformation is saying that for example, you have a fingerprint of them at the scene or you know about something they've done at the crime uh, crime scene or during the crime. And then telling them about it. So just like I said, I know that you assaulted someone with a weapon. That's misinformation. And telling them they did something they didn't do. And that can quite easily be spun into more. Especially when you use things like, well, these poor memory retrieval techniques, such as visualizing it, if you will, fantasizing about it. Um, And... Yeah, closed-ended questions, even open-ended questions. Mm -hmm. So what's amazing is that this study actually used the status quo of um, appropriate police interviewing for the interview itself, not for the memory retrieval technique, but for the interview itself. It was all tell me everything you remember. It was, it wasn't particularly leading. So leading questions, of course, we already know, have huge potential to um, distort reality or distort memory accounts. But my research is showing that maybe even open-ended questions maybe even questions that don't seem threatening, that seem quite neutral in and of themselves can have the potential to facilitate these false memories Mm -hmm. as well. So it really challenges the notion of, well, what do we do now?
2: (laughs) Right. I know. Uh, How do
0: we ask any questions?
2: (laughs) Which is good because I mean, uh, all of our, so much of our legal system was created, you know, it's pre-scientific. It's, 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 uh, before we even (laughs) had these, before we even had the entire field of psychology, we were, we we came up with things like juries and, uh, and, uh, you know, testimony and and, and, so, and many of these in, interrogation techniques. Um, so it's fantastic that you are, you and other scientists are doing stuff like this, saying like, well, maybe we should completely, re, you know, reboot this thing because I mean, it sound, your study, when you read through it, you're like, this sounds a lot like what I've seen in like, you know, crime dramas where they go and they, <laughs> you know, they go interview the people who the person knows and then they go um, talk to eyewitnesses. And then finally, you know, they put them under the white light and say, this is what we know, this is what people are telling us, why won't you tell us the truth? You know, uh, In your mind, do you think that there are, um, there are people right now who have delivered false confessions that they truly personally believe that they did, but they did not do those things?
0: Definitely, definitely, definitely. But uh, in terms of applying my study directly to these kinds of contexts, th- I mean, there are a number of differences between my study and reality, if you will. Sure. First of all, it's unlikely that police would want to generate false memory. They might want to generate a confession, but they probably don't understand that sometimes the way that they're getting that is through a false memory. But I'm intentionally not just trying to get a confession, but I'm trying to get them to internalize it. I'm trying to get them to come up with these details, which again, I would argue is fundamentally different than the goal from the outset that any, any reasonable police officer should have. So that, that's a difference. But yeah, I mean, the techniques themselves. And I think that actually being friendly, this is something that's also und- underexplored, I think, because I was really friendly to my participants. And just like in life, I think people are more likely to help out and do well and try harder for someone who they like. And so if you have a really friendly cop, and you're an eyewitness or a potential eyewitness in to a crime, and they're being great and nice to you and asking all these kinds of questions, you might be more likely to generate false memories, more likely to give them details than if they're being really hostile and aggressive. Mm-hmm. So being friendly could actually be a risk factor, wow. <laughs> uh, which is, so it is interesting.
2: That's so amazing. And, you know, uh, I, I wonder about what our lives are going to be like as we move into a future where more and more of of our experiences are recorded and more and more of um, you know our public interactions with each other are witnessed by you know uh cameras and and that we have a more detailed estimation of our memories because we've saved things with our phones and they're in our social media so like we we're entering a new era of augmented memory um and it's 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 a really, it's. A, I think we're really developing as a, as a species a new relationship with memory itself. And so your research is really important when it comes to that new relationship,
0: I think. Yeah, the new relationship. I mean, there has been some research that has looked at whether or not things like social media help or hinder our memory performance. And so far, it seems like it does a bit of both. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> because, of course, you're also, the way I like to talk about Facebook, and I mean it's made fun of all over the interwebs, is that Facebook is the best version of you. Right, yeah. And so the way we represent ourselves, especially in social media, might actually lead to positive distortions in memory in that you're only filtering and only recording and documenting the best things, the things you want to remember.
2: Totally. It's like a reality show, but just just for you. Of your own life, Yeah. yeah. You're, it's um, so. your your own PR campaign. It's totally
0: <laughs> your own PR campaign. And also, but I mean, that could actually have a positive effect, not necessarily on accuracy of memory, but on um, really focusing on the good things in life. That's true. So, for, for happiness, more than for memory. Wow. So, so uh, yeah.
2: you are, you're going to put all of this into a book, right?
0: I am. So
2: tell me a little bit about that before we, before we uh, have to depart. Tell me about this book project.
0: So I'm working on a book with Penguin Random House called The Memory Illusion, and they saw an interview that I'd given in in a newspaper in London here, and they found it really interesting to see kind of like all the things we talked about, how just how malleable memory can be. And so this book, so The Memory Illusion, Why You May Not Be Who You Think You Are, really delves into everyday memory errors. Such as forgetting a, a name or a phone number, and moves all the way to how we can create completely absurd or seemingly absurd false memories of things such as alien abductions, of violent crimes, of impossible and highly implausible memories. Mm-hmm. And so it really takes the reader through everything from tiny everyday memories and builds up because these big memory errors or really just cumulative effects of these tiny memory errors that we experience regularly.
2: Wow. That's going to be awesome. Uh, when do you think that'll be around? Is it sometime this year or next year?
0: Next year. So it's expected to come out in spring of or early 2016.
2: Okay, cool. Um, maybe we we can get you back then, or, or at least I will definitely tell people, go get this book. So, um,
0: <laughs> sounds good. Um, I appreciate it.
2: Yeah, totally. Uh, Tell me, um, so for everyone who's heard this and they're like, "I want to keep up with this uh, this person forever," how could they find you on the internet and keep up with you?
0: They can find me through my university website, which is Dr. Julia Shaw at the University of Bedfordshire. So if you just Google that, you'll find me. And I'm working on a website as well, but it's not up yet. So okay. soon, hopefully, I'll be more Googleable.
2: Cool. I will. I will retroactively add all of that to the show notes whenever all that happens. So that'll be fine because uh, okay. people might find this you know, months or years later. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for your time. This is absolutely fascinating stuff. I'm so glad you're one of these people out there who is, uh, you know, doing this kind of work and that, uh, and I love that already the world is like, Hey, what's she doing? So that they'll keep up with you in the future. So this is, um, this is great. And I really appreciate you coming on the show.
0: Oh, well, thanks for having me.
2: Cookie starts with C. Let's think of other things that starts with C. Uh, Ah,
0: who cares about other things? C is for cookie.
2: On each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I read a piece of self-delusion news or a scientific study right after eating a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or a reader. You can send your recipes to david at youarenotsosmart.com. And if I pick and bake and eat your recipe... You get a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book. I also post the recipe and the winner and the photos and everything else at smart.com as well as the You Are Not So Smart Pinterest page. This week's recipe is so weird. Oh my God, these cookies are so bizarro. Um, So (laughs) these come from Michelle Brigham. Um, She writes, Hello, David. Every time I listen to your podcast, I am out running and I'm working off those cookies that I end up baking. And I think of this recipe only to forget to send it to you. I promise. These are the tastiest cookies ever. When I'm not feeling uh, like chocolate, I always go for these salty, sweet, insanely delicious cookies. Um, She says that uh, sometimes she increases the amount of cornmeal slightly to reduce the flour. And she goes on to talk about how great they are. She says they're great for spring. I know that we are not in spring yet, but... They're so cool. She says, um, kind regards, Michelle. Yes, thank you very much, Michelle. These are called lemon, zucchini, cornmeal cookies. Lemon and zucchini and cornmeal. And that's pretty much the three flavors that you're going to experience with these cookies. I took a bite of this before I started talking, and that's why my mouth has been going crazy. Oh, give me more. Um, What's inside this? Uh, Unsalted butter, sugar, sugar. Vanilla extract, um, lemon zest, salt, flour, cornmeal, and zucchini, also grated. Now, they look weird when you make them. They're all mushy. It's like it feels like you're making cornbread. And um, as a man who grew up in the deep south, I love my cornbread. And this um, this recipe, once they're finished, they kind of look like really super thin sugar cookies. But here's what they taste like. We're going to taste it right now. Here we go. I love this. Mm, takes me back home, but it's weird, like I'm on acid. Um, this is um. I can only describe the taste of these as being <laughs> key lime cornbread. It tastes like key lime cornbread, even though there's no lime in it. Somehow, the zucchini mixed with lemon makes a lime flavor, and then the texture is like uh, a cornbread cookie. Key lime cornbread. That's all I can say about this. And it feels like I was out, um, you know, uh, uh, (laughs) baling some hay and I saw a mushroom and I was like, you know what? That mushroom looks like it's edible. Ate it. And key lime cornbread. That's what (laughs) this experience is like. It's like um, good old fashioned cornbread and somebody dumped some weird stuff in it and said, you know what? That's good. I think we should make a cookie out of it. And uh, Michelle Brigham, thank you so much for sending this my way. There's a book headed toward you now, and um, I really appreciate it. It's going to help us discuss uh, this uh, self-delusion news. Our guest in this episode, Julia Shaw, she said that you uh, can implant false memories in human beings very easily. And in fact, she implanted false memories in human beings just by asking them the right questions. But might there actually be another way, a more surgical technique... implanting memories well according to a recent study a study that was conducted a few years back maybe at least in mice it seems like this could be possibly true jonathan webb wrote about this research at theconversation.com in an article titled fake memory implanted in mice with a beam of light yes that's right a beam of light for about a decade now neuroscientists have been perfecting this new technique for studying brains And uh, what they do is they genetically modify certain neurons so that those neurons will respond to blue light. It's pretty complicated, but there's, there's certain proteins that are sensitive to photons. And once a mouse's brain has been modified so that it contains those proteins, a beam of light can more or less turn on and off certain parts of their brains. And so Webb says that scientists introduced a mouse to a new area and then observed where in its brain they saw the most activity when it was exploring that new place. And then they then took that mouse to another location and they used a virus to implant light sensitive proteins into the portion of the mouse's brain that seemed to be encoding that memory. And after all of that, with those neurons generating the memory uh, loaded with light sensitive material, the scientists then activated the memory using a beam of light. And then they zapped the mouse with with electricity right afterwards. So hopefully uh, that was going to form a negative association. The, the mouse artificially is pinged uh, for, so that memory will come up and then it gets an electric shock. And hopefully, you know, they condition the mouse to have a negative feeling whenever it has that uh, memory again. So when they returned the mouse to the same location as before, the mouse became paralyzed. All the mice they did this with, where well, they did this technique, they became paralyzed with fear much more often in that location that they had been exploring than did control mice who just were placed there, And then taken away and then put back again. So is it possible to implant false memories into people against their will using surgery? Well, in a way, yeah, probably. Using viruses and beams of light, these scientists created a learning experience for the mouse. And the result was a real automatic uncontrollable fear of a place where nothing scary had actually ever happened to it. So it's one study on a mouse and the situation was simple and the research is ongoing, but there's no denying that they've proved it's possible to tinker with a few neurons and change an animal's behavior in the same way it would have naturally changed through remembering. If you would like to read that article, it is fake memory implanted in mice with a beam of light. It is written by Jonathan Webb and you can find it at theconversation.com. that is it for this episode of the you are not so smart podcast go to you are not so smart.com just go there and look at it and also find links to everything that was in this show. All the things we talked about, sources and all that will be there. Go to patreon.com slash Smart to pitch in and help the show grow and survive and thrive and be alive. And uh, go to boingboing.net for more great podcasts like this one. If you're not already subscribed to this show on Stitcher or iTunes or SoundCloud, please do that. It super, super helps out everything. Uh, you can listen to all the previous episodes on one of those services. And you can send your cookie recipes to David at you are not so smart.com. If I bake your cookie, I will send you a signed copy of the book. Follow You Are Not So Smart on Facebook, Twitter, and Google Plus. On Twitter, it's at NotSmartBlog. I'm at David McRaney. Opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. The rest of the music beds were by Mogwai and Banjo Apocalypse and Drew Gearway.